0: Welcome to our podcast. It's not prod. I can't. Even... It's pod. <laughs> I think I think I need a speech language. Okay. What right now? Let's try that one again. Hello, SL peeps. Welcome to True Confessions with Lisa and Sarah. Okay, concert confessing now. This is so cheesy. <laughs>
1: Sarah. Well, hi, Lisa. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. This is always a little bit more awkward because we have a guest today, and so she's watching us talk to to each other. (laughs) So tell us about our guest. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited about this one. We kind of gave a teaser in our last podcast episode about our guest for this one because we were actually... Uh, like hesitated for a minute, like, can we even ask social thinking for somebody? And we thought, why not? What's the worst thing that happens? Let's just put it out there and we'll ask. And they actually responded and said, yes, that they would love to do the podcast. So we have Ryan, who is one of the presenters from social thinking, and I will let her introduce herself.
2: Hi, good morning. Good morning. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm Ryan Hendricks. I am a speech and language pathologist, and I am a member of the social thinking speaking and training collaborative. Um, So I get to, when uh, Michelle and Pam are busy and aren't able to do things like this, um, they were kind enough to pass this off. And so I got the opportunity to meet with and chat with you all this morning. So How I'm
0: do you excited like do that? that? that's like a dream <laughs> job. I know,
2: right? I, I think that all the time and and pinch myself every so often, <laughs> mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, well, I was introduced to social thinking as a graduate student at the University of Arizona. So Dr. Pamela Crook was my clinical supervisor and mentor. And for that clinical rotation, uh, we were running social skills groups for students with high functioning autism and Asperger's. And uh, we were using as our guide, the Thinking About You, Thinking About Me, um, first edition by one Michelle Garcia winner. Uh, So that was my introduction to social thinking. And it it was not... It was very different from my other clinical experiences. I think we've chatted a little bit before about the idea of this being really um, complicated and tricky. And I remember kind of preparing for my first group and having a lesson plan of this is the concept I'm going to teach, and I'm going to introduce it in this way, and then we'll do this for about five minutes, and then this for ten minutes, and then. I think for anybody who has done anything social-related in terms of trying to teach, the plan went totally out the window. (laughs) Um, Several minutes into the session, my students were asking things like, well, why would I do that? Or who are you? Or that's stupid. Or you're stupid. Or what's your IQ? Because <laughs> this is mine. And I didn't. I didn't have a number, and I didn't have an answer. Um, and 45 minutes later, walked out with I think my hair puffed up and my glasses. Off. <laughs> like what? What just happened? Um, so it was not easy, but it was. It was fun and it was engaging and challenging. So that was kind of my introduction and absolutely could have been a, I will wait for the end of this clinical placement and move on to something that is a little bit more straightforward Um, but I felt really passionate about it and jumped in with both feet, um, and just had the opportunity to keep going. Uh, Pam joined the social thinking team and then there was an opportunity, an open desk. So in 2008, um, I had the opportunity to join the social thinking team and I've been at my same desk ever since.
0: Well, I hate to cut this interview short, but we are both ASU Sun Devil. I, yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm cool. I continue this interview <laughs> <anymore>. <laughs> I I that that you know. got Hyper focused on just now. <laughs> 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 that was all well and good. I didn't know that Dr. Crook was um, a professor at University of Arizona. That's really cool. He was, yeah, yeah, for a time. Close yeah. to home, yeah. yeah, because we are based out of um, the Phoenix, Arizona area, area. So we both went to
1: grad school at Arizona State. Yeah. Well, cool, that is awesome. Yeah, that is amazing. And since 2008, Lisa and I were actually talking about um, when we were getting ready for this interview is, uh, you know, when was your first experience with social thinking? And I was telling her, I remember it being introduced to me and thinking I was the last person on earth who had ever heard of it. Everybody seemed to know what this was. And, and we talked about that, you know, like what makes something so popular and so, you know, have such a huge reach. Um, and so then we were even like saying, well, when did it first come out? Um, Because I think I had heard about it, I feel like around 2009, probably for the first time.
2: Yeah. Well, I think social thinking uh, is created by Michelle Garcia winner over 20 years ago. And she was an SLP working in the schools. And like anybody, you know, had students on her caseload where she was really trying to connect the dots and figure out why were they having a hard time connecting with each other, responding the way they were, but also having these challenges with their, in the academic curriculum as well, the reading comprehension, the writing, and just really connecting all those dots. And I think um, it's very much began as a grassroots, you know, here's what she was doing, working with her students, and people were hearing about it and wanted her to get out there and start talking about it. And she will say she never imagined that it would be what it is today, then, right? Because it was really just about sharing what seemed to be really helping her students. Um and yeah, and how it just kind of spread a lot of word of mouth, I think, yeah. and people like, oh, this makes sense, or I can use this to kind of untangle this really complex world of social and figure out how to teach it.
0: Well, and what I love is on the website, if anybody does want to look at some of the research that supports the social thinking curriculum, there is a tab on the socialthinking.com website that has articles that support, you know, some of that peer um, research that supports the curriculum. And even I think personally, I came to social thinking, I don't even think for the therapy piece, at first, for me, it was more the assessment piece. I was struggling with, I had kids on my caseload that I thought were, you know, quote unquote, weird. And I didn't know how to assess that and write that in an evaluation in in an objective way, in an objective way, in a concrete way, what kind of goals do you write? So I think, you know, even speaking from our confession kind of base, my favorite thing in IEP meetings, my confession was I would say, well, we're going to work on this indirectly. You know, there are some needs here and some (laughs) goals that I didn't know how to write your kids weird. And um, I didn't know how to write goals for that. And so I would just say, we're going to work on that indirectly and we would address it. And, you know, I had some, I think therapy supports for that, but then that was what opened the door. I love even finding, I had read articles about all of the descriptive assessments because the kids I was testing, there was no standardized right. testing right. that right. We gave you any good information or you had those kids that did well on something like the test of problem solving. They knew the answers in that kind of concrete context, but completely fell apart. Right. 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 Right.
1: Yeah. That was my confession. Yeah. Really, really bad. Right. (laughs) They're they're so fun to work with. And I agree with you. I think the treatment can be really fun. Um, and I think they're very interesting. It's the, the, especially I think maybe working in a schools and anywhere else is this documentation that we had to do. So we have to write this very concrete goal that we're going to take, um progress on and writing a progress report and how do you put something that's so abstract and complex mm-hmm. and you know in a concrete way that's observable skill that i can measure well and so that was a struggle
2: yeah and i think that that is what really resonated with me uh, as far as the social thinking methodology was just the idea of taking these very abstract very dynamic synergistic things the things that you notice right that stand out to you and you're like oh and that makes me uncomfortable, or a student is doing XYZ and that kind of standing out from their peers, but how do you describe that? Mm-hmm. If you can't kind of put your finger on what it is if you don't have some language around it, then how do you support them? Right. How do you write goals around it? How do you communicate with the team? And then how do you work on it? So I was really drawn to the methodology because of the language, because of the the entire, you know, the vocabulary that Michelle had developed to talk about the abstract in a way that was concrete. Because if we can talk about it, now we can teach it. Right. Now we can wow. it. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Now, did you work in the schools?
1: Have you worked in the schools or do you mostly do private? private
2: practice. Okay. Um, I, in my, in my role, I get to wear many hats. Um, one of them, I am a clinician at the, the, uh, social thinking Stevens Creek in San Jose. And I, that's the same desk I've been at for, for all these many years. And it's a, it's a private clinical practice and we see people across the lifespan. So our, the age range is four. So I think our one of the older clients is 74. Wow.
1: Um,
2: yeah. My caseload I have, my youngest is four and my oldest is 18 and getting ready to graduate from high school. So I get to work across the lifespan. Um, But then I also get to uh, wear a different hat and get to go out and do speaking and training and consulting with schools. So I get to work with school teams, um, even though I don't work directly in a school kind of running groups and working with students there.
0: Yes. So working in a school setting, I think one of the things that often pops up is within that treatment kind of context we don't get the benefit often of working one on one. if it's really what a student truly needs, we can you know everything has to be individualized. but is that necessary a and um if we if not in a group setting, should we be matching our students with social um, language needs with other students with social language needs? Should we be, be matching them with typical peers? Like, have you found that yeah, there's...
2: that's a that's a great question, and, and one that comes up pretty frequently, um, because I think as a lot of people have the idea that, oh, well, if they work with their peer without social learning challenges, then that peer will be modeling um, kind of what we would think of as kind of the expected social behaviors, and they would be able to learn that. But I, I think what we've found is that if for our students with social learning differences, if they could learn it just by being with their typical peers, then we wouldn't see the challenges that we're seeing. So um, while I think that the vocabulary and the concepts are great for all students, and in fact, there's been uh, it's been really exciting the last couple of years to really bring social thinking Kind of school wide, classroom wide, district wide. So everybody has this shared vocabulary around social. What we found though is for students whose brains don't make this easy for them we have to break it down even further. We have to slow it down even more. So you know, when possible, and of course, like in an ideal world, then we can group together students with similar social learning differences so you can really break it down and teach it um, at the level that they need, right? So that it makes sense, or we can th- take it from their perspective and break it down in that concrete way.
1: And can you do this one day a week for 30 minutes in a group of four? <laughs> Obviously, we know in the schools that we are supposed to provide support to the student right. needs, regardless of what our schedules look like. But right. the reality is we have huge caseloads. Right. And we do tend to have kind of these like, you know, 30-minute sessions. You might get lucky if you've got enough time to see a kid twice a week for 30, right. uh, you know. And and again, we need to do what's best for kids. And so I'm I'm asking that kind of in a flippant way because ideally how much support is this requiring right. um, should we be expected to be supporting with these students?
2: Yeah, no, and I think that um, yeah, we think a lot about kind of how the social mind is not just what we use in conversation or on the playground or at lunch, um, but that social mind is what goes into the classroom as well, right? It's what helps you figure out what the teacher's instructions are or what you're, or pull meaning from what you're reading or to write an effective paper. So that social mind goes across the school day, and yet we have like 30 minutes once a week to really kind of uh, dive in and tackle that. Now, that being said, I think that's why whenever possible, you know, just even as a, as a private clinician, I try to communicate with, we work with families and with the school team whenever possible, so we're sharing that language. So perhaps you're working with a student, you're introducing a concept, but if that same concept can go back to the classroom with them, if they can hear that same language kind of across the course of the school day, then that's triggering that thinking more than just that half hour a week. Um, I think definitely as I got started, Started social thinking for a lot of my students was something that we just talked about one hour one time a week, and and that's just a drop in the bucket, right? So trying to find ways that the to continue that conversation, um, I think that's everybody's kind of challenge and and what we work to do.
0: So even can it be as simple as sending an email to the teacher, hey, this is what we're working on, and you know. Yeah,
2: I think there are a lot of different options. So, um, yes, sending an email to the teacher like, hey, here's the concept we're talking about. Here's what we're working on. Here's what we broke down today. Um, I think in some some settings, um, the SLP might go in and do a classroom-wide kind of lesson. So your kids whose brains make this easy for them, they're going to pick it up right away. Then you've got a shared language. And then you're also not singling out the couple of students who are in the classroom um, that are really struggling with it. I think what that does too is that it makes it a conversation and it makes it okay that we're talking about the thing that is challenging because everybody notices, right? They notice when the kid who's in class with them is doing something (laughs) that is unexpected and disrupting the learning for everybody, but then it turns it into a conversation. Um, So I think that kind of as a community, we can have a little bit more empathy and a way to talk about kind of what we're observing because we notice it, but how do we talk about it?
0: Well, here's the thing. The teachers notice too. These are the kids that are on the teacher's radar that they're, like I need you to support this student because they're driving me
1: crazy. Right.
2: Right. And we found that um when we can go in and offer concepts and strategies that support that student, then that makes the entire learning experience better for everybody, better for the other,
0: for the other students, better for the teacher as well. Yeah, I think that's huge because that's where it does come from. It's that idea of frustration of I don't know how to support. So Mm -hmm. just give me some things I can do to support this student. To make them successful in my classroom, um, and then help the other students too. If I see those kind of interactions, that how do I help the other students work with this child as well within that framework?
1: Yeah. Right. Right. And then I think it's our understanding of the, our role, too. You know, it's a little tricky in the schools sometimes for eligibility purposes, because oftentimes these kids are going to do really well right. on something like the self. Sure. Um, and so we get a lot of questions about that in, in, as far as diagnostics um, when it comes to eligibility requirements. And so can we talk a little bit about what is the, the impact that this, this is having on their ability to access curriculum, which is kind of that, that deciding factor of what it is that, that qualifies a student for support in the schools? Sure.
2: Well, I mean, it goes back to that idea of the the social mind not just being for these kind of face-to-face interactions, conversations. Um, but if we think about, you know, really thinking about the thinking you have to do when the teacher gives instructions to the classroom. So I can think of this great example of a student who they had a four-part, you know, essay writing assignment. And um, the student went up to the teacher and said, do I need to write a rough draft? And the teacher said, all good writers write a rough draft. Well, my student did not write a rough draft (laughs) Because, (laughs) because that would have required interpretation, right? And that uses your social mind. And my student is a literal thinker. So there was no rough draft. And so he was missing a quarter of his grade, right? And he had advocated, he'd gone up to the teacher, but So much of what happens in the classroom and so much of how we communicate is indirect. So that's kind of one piece is being able to understand the the directions. But if you also think about just even uh, being able to read and understand a text where you have to take the perspective of the characters, where you have to follow the thread of the story, where you have to pick up the important little details and kind of put them together, all of that is your social mind as well. Um, or writing a paper again. Who are you writing it for? How do you choose your language? How do you organize it so it makes sense to somebody else's brain? How do you boil it down to the important information? All of those pieces again. Those are the same. It's the same thinking you have to use kind of across the school day. So um, we've talked a lot recently as an organization about going back to our educational standards. Going to if if your state is using Common Core, you can use that as your fuel to talk about how this impacts a student academically. So the speaking and listening standards, for sure. Anything that has point of view in it is your doorway into yep. being able to talk about teaching perspective taking.
1: I love that. And I was so, I loved when the Common Core was rolled out in Arizona because of that speaking and listening. It really made a her argument for everything we do. <laughs> right. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, and then I even think as
0: students get older into high school and then you're dealing with six different teachers with six different point of views, with six different sense of expectations nice. of how assignments are turned in and or are supposed to be completed. And it gets even that much trickier for them and putting that all into that kind of context is really difficult.
2: Right. And I think for those students who don't show up on paper necessarily, who sit down to do the, uh, maybe some of the classic standardized measures and do really well, but it's the same student who's not connecting with a single peer on their campus. is not getting their work turned in. There are all these, these other, you know, challenges. And I think one of the things we've talked about as an organization too, is that what many times gets called a mild, social problem is a really significant problem in in reality. And that's where, can you talked about at the beginning, what brought you to social thinking was the assessment piece, Um, bringing in uh, the dynamic informal assessment that does look at social in a real-time interaction, um, I think is a really important piece to add to kind of the overall picture when we're assessing a student. So here's what these tests look like. However, it's not timed. It's not their social, it's not their problem they're solving, right? So that gives us one picture, but then let's look at all this other information. Let's look at how they did kind of um, in being able to do this problem solving. Let's look at what their executive function is like. Let's look at their interactions with their peers. So it's kind of taking, kind of zooming out a little bit and um, getting information from lots of different places to make that case for why we want to support that student. And for the kids who aren't going to get that uh, support, who aren't going to necessarily qualify if we can't figure out how to make that happen, I think that's where there's the tremendous benefit in making this a shared language and kind of a community-wide conversation. Because then for the kids who aren't qualifying, if you're talking with the entire classroom about expected and unexpected behaviors, if you're talking with the entire classroom about hidden rules or what it means to keep your brain in the group, then you're catching those students too.
0: Well, I think it's really interesting from an assessment piece that I think most SLPs are super comfortable with the idea of using a combination of of the standardized and descriptive assessment when you're doing something like a language evaluation, it's a you know, language sample and you do a classroom observation and that's just part of your comprehensive assessment. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to this social language piece, it's not. Everybody wants this kind of concrete test to give. And so it, it typically ends up, I think what I see a lot on the message boards is either doing something like the TOPS or doing something like the SELF pragmatics profile, which that's great. That's good information, you know, to, to give as part of of the puzzle piece and one set of data. But I love, there are a couple of articles and we can link to this in the actual um, podcast, but that are on the social thinking website that talk about, well, what are some other um, informal assessments I can do? Yeah, So Uh interview and even doing like a picture sequencing task and what that means. And really what I love about those is how, it's broken down in those articles not only what to do and how to do but what does that mean yes if they can't do it and so that ties back into taking these kind of abstract concepts breaking it down into concrete steps and gives me information that i can actually put into a report that makes sense for me in guiding treatment but then i remember the first time i ever did that i had a psychologist that said i've never seen a report uh, for social language that is this comprehensive for a student because I think it makes more sense to the team too that this is the student this now I can really see how this connects in to the other information that we've been hearing about the student yeah.
2: Yeah. And I think it too, it helps. I think it helps everybody. So one of the, um, concepts that we've been talking a lot about the last couple of years is this, um, the social competency model. So I don't know if you can link to that as well, because there are tons of free articles, um, and, and webinars and things like that on the social thinking website. But the idea of thinking about kind of in it, um, a like an iceberg of sorts. And what we see like in an iceberg, what's above the surface is just the skill. And that can be their ability to interact with others. That can be what they write, whatever that social output is. But what's beneath the surface is all of kind of the input, the information they're noticing around them, right? How they interpret it, how they make sense of it, how they problem solve with it. So everything that's kind of beneath the surface, and I think that's what you were talking about with when we're writing a really comprehensive report, how it helps everybody look beneath the surface, not just here's the output, but everything that's going on beneath the surface so we can figure out, oh, here's how this is connected or this is why they're responding in this way or this is why this behavior is happening because they missed this information or they misinterpreted the information or whatever it might be and kind of working kind of beneath the beneath the surface too to support that student.
0: Well, I think you see a lot of things that you would never pick up on in other contexts. So I even think of some of the double interviews I've done where I have pictures of myself and my family, and I've had students that identify my daughter who I think in the picture, she was probably about 10 as me. So dark, long, dark hair and clearly not me. And so that kind of stuff pops up where you're like, oh, that's interesting. The difficulty of facial recognition or even that concept of Clearly, that's not me. Or right. I had, we have done like the eye gaze test and then, you know, being able to see if they can identify what I am looking at. But then, what do you think I'm thinking about? Yeah. And I remember one student, I was looking at my purse. And I said, well, what do you think I'm thinking about? And he said, you're thinking about that boat you always wanted to buy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, that's really interesting. And you get these answers where you're like, this is what's going on in this kid's brain all day long. The kid's full right. no perspective taking. Why would I be, he knows nothing about me. Why would I be thinking about a boat I want to buy? And no other context of conversation. Sorry. But it kind of gives you that information of this is why. This is, he right. has no idea how to like maneuver through any kind of social setting because this is how his brain's wired. Yeah. We got to we got to work on this perspective taking.
2: Yeah, <laughs> among, <laughs> among other things. Well, among- you're absolutely right. It's all those little, and I think that we get so much rich information from those little tasks. Like the eye gaze task that you were just talking about takes probably two minutes to do, right? And we get so much good information about whether they're able to understand that it's somebody's eyes that are giving information about what they might be looking at, and then what they might be thinking about. Um, because I think very classically, for students with social learning. Challenges, challenges we i always see written down because when people apply and and would like to participate in the clinic you know we always get reports and information and i see written in so many places lack of eye contact right mm-hmm. but what does that mean and then how do you teach that and it's not look at me or make eye contact but why do we do that right and i think again that's what drew me to the methodologies, teaching the why behind it, that it's not just the skill, but the thinking and those things kind of together. And how, you know, a two minute little task can give me that information or the double interview that you mentioned um, that really kind of helps us notice like how a student's able to take perspective, even the way that they respond to what somebody else is saying or the way they formulate their responses. Like all of that is such rich information. If we can gather
0: it and then figure out What it means for that for that student, or can they even generate questions about? I mean, you know, the the level of difficulty that some students have with that task. That sometimes you even have to give them question stems to even get. So, what kind of students are best suited for the social thinking curriculum?
2: Yeah, that is such a such a great question um, because you know we know there are lots of students out there that could use support in terms of their their social social development, but social thinking as a as a methodology is for students with. Um, average to above average language and learning abilities because it's language based. We're talking about thinking and thoughts, so we're using our language to talk about these abstract uh, abstract concepts. Now that being said, people, um, you know, are can apply the the thinking to a variety of different students with different challenges. But kind of at its core, this is who it was developed for. Um, Another way that we think about that is for students who are using language to learn as opposed to students who are still learning language.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great point. It is because it, even though it is much more concrete than any other explanation of what these you know, skills are, are referring to, um, there is still a lot of conversation and language that's happening right. in these discussions. And I think, and I was gonna say this at the, or at the beginning, I think what a lot of school-based SLPs need or want, I should say, more than anything, is somebody to spell something out for them really clearly. We have to be a jack of all trades, and we have to know something about everything. Um, And so oftentimes, we want a curriculum. Like, we want something that we have that's this tangible, spelled-out scope and sequence. Um, So I think that was one of the things that drew me to social thinking early on, is I've got these, like, lessons, these ways I can teach these really difficult concepts that were spelled out so clearly that I understand that. And that are meaningful. That they're meaningful and that there's activities and there is kind of, there is kind of a scope and sequence, right, of, of how we should um, be teaching these these skills. Now, I know we need to obviously apply everything specific to a student's needs, sure. uh, but I think that was like the, the one thing is finally, somebody gave me like the tools that I needed to be able to explain these things, but there is a lot of instruction, so the students need to be capable, of understanding the language. Yeah.
2: Well, and I think that, you know, there's a difference. So, so social thinking as a methodology is a methodology, right? It's based in the research it's developmentally based. And from that, that's kind of our, the, everything comes from that. So there are a number of different curriculums that are out there, but that's really kind of the vehicle for the concepts and for the strategies. So, I don't know. I mean, it does, it depends on the student, but there is not um, necessarily like a super clear cut start here, then do this, then do this. It's very dynamic in that way. And we're constantly learning more about our students and figuring out anytime I teach a lesson or I go in with a concept, I always uncover 10 other things I need to (laughs) like, oh, right. I need to teach that and that and that. So I think sometimes that can feel like we're all over the place a little bit. Um, But I think it kind of goes back to, all right, what are the students' core challenges. Um, and you know, that core challenge is going to manifest in many different ways. So instead of trying to put kind of band-aids on all the little issues that are popping up, it's trying to like back up and where are all these challenges coming from. So if it's perspective taking, you know, then that's where we really want to teach. Because if you have challenges with perspective taking, that's going to pop up in lots of different places, like thinking that that you're thinking about your boat that you want to buy
1: <laughs> or
2: whatever that might be. <laughs>
0: yeah, you planted a seed, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> right, you're like, boat would be
1: great.
2: <laughs> um, I think though, as far as kind of There are, you know, I think, as I mentioned, there are several curriculums that are there that do, you know, as part of this bigger picture, that do have like a lesson one introduce this, right? What's going to give them a good foundation? And then you kind of add to it from there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, And that's what it is. I think more than I, curriculum is probably not a great word for that because, like you said, it is so dynamic. I think it was just... So often, you know, we would have something like the classic goal would be to maintain a topic. Yes. You know, yes. yes. Conversational. <laughs> we call this <three laughs> conversational Right. right. You know, the classic goal right. that every student right. with social needs has on their eye right. contact. Right. So, yes. Man, yes. 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 awkward. Exactly. <laughs> I think that's, oh, we just had a little visitor for all of you. just are obviously just listening and not watching. A little dog just popped up. (laughs) And he'll be back. (laughs) And he'll be back. Um, So I think that's what it was. It made me think more about bigger picture Mm -hmm. goals um, and things that were realistic. I am not going to write a goal for eye contact you know, I am probably going to write a goal that has more to do with being a social detective and about thinking about others and about being more observant and, you know, why I need to be looking at somebody when I'm talking to them. Right, and, yeah.
2: right, right, right. Well, conversation is where it all comes together, where I'm thinking about, what do I know? What do I know about me? What do I know about you? Um, now we, now we know, um, we've got a a U of A ASU thing going on here. (laughs) (laughs) I should have made that smart guess
1: uh, on on
2: on the call. Um, no, but where we we've got all that kind of knowledge and information about each other. And even as we're, we're having the conversation, I'm monitoring to see, does that make sense? Do I need to give more information? Do I need to give less information? Um, and to kind of interpret what you're saying. So like conversation is so complicated. It's where it all comes together, but that's what we notice, right? We notice somebody has, uh, is this where the challenges are popping up. So I see those conversation goals. All the time when reports come in and, and I think like, I'm sure I've written those goals too, right? Before I knew how to dive in any deeper.
0: Well, and I think the thing is, it doesn't mean necessarily, you know, I've been guilty in the past of writing those kind of goals for these more dynamic concepts of something I knew I could measure. Mm-hmm. And so yes. that doesn't mean that that is exactly how I'm teaching it or working on it in therapy, but that was how I could measure it for purposes of completing a progress report. Right. Can they maintain
1: a conversation for three
0: conversational turns? Right. Yes I, or no? Yeah, I can measure <laughs> that. You know, and I think it's one of those things, like, you know better, you do better, right. you learn things along the way that, you know, shape future decisions. But I have definitely been in that space before. And I actually remember mentoring grad students in the past and even talking about language, like more just language based goals. saying, if you can't measure it, don't write that goal. Like you have to figure out how to measure (laughs) it. And we're going to, you know, blah, 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 blah. But I was like, oh my gosh, I think of some of the things that have come out of my mouth in the past
1: and probably will come out of my mouth in the future. I'm not going to lie. Let's let's talk about goals for a minute though, Uh, because it is, it's really complicated. I think we do a good job of seeing a need Um, and determining, you know, I think we're really great at at going, yep, that's not typical. It's impacting him in these ways. We need to target it. Um, But writing the goals can be really challenging for us because it does need to be objective.
2: Right. Agreed. You know, I think one of the things that kind of a couple of ideas um, that uh, is in the last many years, we've really moved to using rubrics um, as opposed to like, percentages, um, to, and, and I think, you know, I was talking with an educator and like teachers use rubrics like for forever. (laughs) Um, but this is, I think maybe like a, a newer thing that we're doing, at least like in our office. And then when we're talking about this with different groups, talking about using rubrics, but then also thinking about things like, Um, A lot of times, traditionally, goals are looking at a behavior right, or a response. So writing goals that also are able to look at a student's understanding of a concept and not just their production. So a goal can be written in a couple of different ways, like a student's able to explain a concept or given a situation can identify whatever it is, like the thinking and the doing. And we're always going to have the ability to understand a concept, to think about it, to discuss it before. we're able to produce that behavior. I mean, think about anybody with uh, any sort of behavior change, right? That that's a really slow and deep process. And first we have to understand it. And I think that that opens us up a little bit. If my goal is written that a student will understand a concept, then that kind of takes the pressure off of them being able to do it. Instead, we can talk about and kind of break down the layers of, well, when do I do it? why would I do it? <laughs> uh, depends on, and, and, and I think one of the things I, I really love about social thinking that makes it, but also makes it complicated. Is there's so much? What if it's not a black and white, like the a topic and who it would be, um, like whether or not to bring it up depends on where you are who's there, what's happening. So if we can instead talk about like, how do you figure those things out? How do you consider and, and be a social detective as you were talking about and think about kind of the context. Like if we can write goals around that, then we can write um, like kind of thinking goals, if you will.
1: Yeah, I love that you said that because um, we had Nina um, Reeves on, um, presented for us during the conference we just held, and she talked a lot about fluency, stuttering goals, mm-hmm. and oftentimes people were writing goals that said something about the student will be fluent 93% of the time, you know, those kind of goals like that, which is not the, the best way to be treating stuttering, and it really goes back to all of these other things like the environment and, um I can't think off the top of my head, reactions, Reactions, things like that. And so, and so a lot of the goal examples she gave were about, um, have the student explain, you know, something about their their reactions or have them understand the concept of whatever it was that they were teaching and working on in therapy. Um, and I know I never wrote goals like that. Well, and I think too, we have in, within our software,
0: we have a lot of rubrics built in for social think or not for social thinking for social skills and, Mm -hmm. um, of goals. And I think that was what made sense for us too, is that it is such a dynamic area that involves not even just the skill breakdown itself and task analyzing what's going on there, but what kind of queuing is going on to support right. the for success? What setting are they successfully using that kind of skill? So that was sort of the framework that we looked at when we were developing our rubrics was that it is, it's such a, you know, so many moving parts that go in to these types of goals. It's yeah. not, you know, just a grammar, you know, can the, the student use past tense ED?
1: It's not a black and white kind of concrete skill like that. Yeah, the rubrics give us a lot more information. And when we came up with the, the rubrics and other progress monitoring tools, it was coming from the place of being like a teacher. So right. I love that, that teachers use rubrics all the time. We we really drove a lot of our product by we wanted to do some things more like teachers do in terms of being able to see whether or not students were learning what we were, we, we were teaching them. From a yeah. school
0: perspective, the only thing we say is... Is just make sure that that rubric is attached to the IEP because mm-hmm. if you if that student moves and somebody inherits your treatment plan your IEP then they'll have no idea how to measure that if right. they don't have the rubric attached right. to it right. and the other thing too I think there have been a couple of people that have said they've gotten pushback from administration about using rubrics because they don't feel like it's as cut and dry and measurable as a percentage based, Goal.
1: And so we always they like the graph, they like those graphs that have percentage. Uh Uh-huh.
0: We always just say, you know, engage in a conversation, ask them why, what is their thinking, what is their fear in that. Show them, you know, if you give a little explanation on how this might be a better way and more authentic way to measure that. I think oftentimes that you know, it's not like a state-driven thing that you can't use a rubric. Like you said, teachers use them all the time. It's not something from the federal level either. So I think sometimes just engaging your administration in conversations that yeah. are meaningful um, can help with some of that. Yeah, absolutely. So social thinking, is that because it is more dynamic and I think if your iceberg analogy goes deeper, would you say that it's different than, than just the term social skills?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, that is kind of the, there's a big difference between teaching social skills and teaching social competencies. So the competencies is the whole iceberg. It's getting beneath the surface, it's thinking about the thinking behind the doing. And social skills is just focused on that kind of very surface level. Raise your hand, you know, all those kinds of just the social skills, the turn taking or whatever it might be. But what drives that and figuring out, oh, now it's time to raise my hand or, oh, we've moved on. I should put my hand down. Like all those things are the why that's beneath the surface. So social thinking is teaching kind of, again, this, the thinking, the problem solving and the skills. But, but we always have to start by really backing up and teaching the, the thinking behind the doing. And that makes think, so much sense. Yeah. Well, and I think that was a um, kind of one of the ways that that I remember um, Pam talking about it is just kind of in a nutshell is think the thinking behind the doing. Oh, right. It is. And Michelle redefining this idea of thinking about successful social skills is our ability to share space effectively with others. Because I think that helps social skills. I think many times people get wrapped up in like it being nice and neat and friendly. Um, but effective social thinking, sometimes you you use that, uh, you use your social thinking and social skills to avoid a conversation
1: (laughs) with somebody, right? Yes. So it's not always nice. I see somebody that I didn't really want to run into and Uh I turn quickly and go down a different aisle. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) i Came in the office today and didn't even say
0: hi to me. (laughs) (laughs) got to do a podcast and like, (laughs) so um, I love how generous um, social thinking is just with education in general. I know that there are specific trainings that are conferences and things that you can pay for, but even I noticed today, I got something in my inbox about a free webinar that Michelle is doing. Right. So there are lots of opportunities to learn more about this curriculum for free. There are lots of articles on the website to look into and learn more about social thinking the products are probably the best investment that you can I make, so whether too. you're working in a Hands clinic or a school setting. If you're working with any students that have any sort of social um, language kind of needs. Yep. I mean, it's really such a well-rounded well thought out pro, uh, program, and I love again even the the newer curriculum that's come out that even supports younger students. Yes, is great. I great. that. So it's not just for older students. There is stuff that supports preschool age students as well.
1: Do you have something you recommend? Where something because there is a lot. There's a lot of material out there. Mm-hmm. Um, somewhere you would recommend. I know. I think my first exposure was thinking about you thinking about yeah. me. Sure. So, yeah. Me too.
2: Well, and we still, you know, for people who are new to the methodology, that is many times where we send them because it is the, it is kind of the, um, the, the, backbone and talking about social learning challenges, the dynamic assessment that, that you mentioned is in that book as well. So you've there are assessment tasks and examples of how to write about some of this, which is so tricky and can be um, can be can be complex. Um, and then there are lots of different ideas and activities and strategies. So I think that's a great starting place. And then I think it depends very much on the age group that you're working with. So you mentioned our early learner curriculum, and that was that's one of the other hats I get to where I get to do some writing for social thinking. So I was part of that team with Carrie Weber Palmer and Nancy Tarshis and Michelle in thinking about how do we take these same concepts and how do we bring them down for our early learners? So you'll see across the curriculums, uh, the shared vocabulary, the social thinking vocabulary is in all of them. So if you're working with our early learners, there's a curriculum for that. If you're working with our elementary age students. So in, I think on the website, it's organized by age groups too. And um, organized by um, kind of like, if you're just looking for background overall um, information where you can go for that as well. And like anything, as, a, as an organization, it is a work in progress. So the, uh, the website is being updated or we're adding new content. You know, these webinars that you mentioned, Michelle is doing uncovering kind of 10 core social thinking vocabulary concepts and as you mentioned those are free and there's one every month um and just lots and lots of different resources and um you know places where you can learn more.
0: And if you really want to geek out you guys have the clinical training program which is a meek is that twice a year?
2: No it's um it's monthly um, and not in the summer I don't think at least in California. So Social thinking as an, an organization has a, an office in the San Jose area, and then there is another office, social thinking Boston. And then, you know, people come through who are interested in learning more about social thinking. They've been to conferences, they've read some of uh, the materials, they're using them. And if they're interested in kind of a more intensive training, it's a three-day program um, where you get to come in and you get to observe an assessment and kind of go through just from beginning to end, chart reviews. Um, watch the assessment, be part of thinking about what you observed that, and then um, kind of how that would get written up. And then you get to do two days of observing in the clinic. So you get to watch the clinicians in action working across the age groups.
1: Oh, so, That's like all of our dreams to do <laughs> that opportunity. And what
0: if one just wants to be best friends saying <laughs> that? Michelle and Pam? (laughs) I mean, how would one go about that?
1: Maybe somebody already is in their head. Yeah. (laughs) Like imaginary best friends. Right. Lisa got a picture with Michelle a couple of years ago, and now she's convinced they're going to be best friends. Clearly, right? We are. She just doesn't know it yet.
2: <laughs> and I do. I think that one of the things that I was struck by, I remember going to, um, after I'd been introduced to social thinking and is working with Pam and another colleague, Janine Rockman Shapiro, and we were looking at using the social thinking vocabulary and doing this research article. So we went to ASHA, we were going to meet Michelle, and I felt like we were at a rock (laughs) (laughs) and she was like this star up on the stage and at the time the rubber chicken was really prominent in a lot of her work right because we all have those oops social moments those rubber chicken moments and in my memory like I was there in the crowd with my rubber chicken like Michelle
0: (laughs) <laughs> I'm glad it's not, not just us. No, it's not You're just us. MGW. I really yep.
2: yep. yep. What yep. would MGW do? Right? I know. This could be bracelets. Um, but I think one of the things that's so nice is that she is so approachable and just... She and Pam are just so down to earth and always super generous with their with their time and their knowledge, which is always so nice.
1: Yes. And I think with any of this, so we had the opportunity to work with Carrie a couple of years ago. Oh, she yeah. did an online conference with us. Yeah. Uh, and then and then now meeting you too. Um, obviously you guys all you know what you're talking about. And I could listen to any of you because you're all very relatable and you put things in in terms that I can understand and it's interesting and, and I honestly I, anytime I see a social thinking course pop up, I attend um, at any conference. And and, if you are a wildcat, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you. you. Yes, I'll play that down. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, this has been amazing. Yeah. I, you know, I'm really excited. I think our audience members are going to love this because I think, again, anything that we can do to get concrete information in the hands of, of individuals that are struggling of what do I do with these kids is amazing.
2: Yeah. And the
1: social
0: thinking curriculum is just that.
1: Yeah. Well,
2: it's been a pleasure. Thank you all so much for having me.
1: Yes. I know. I hope we have an opportunity to work together again in the future. I literally, I could just do this all day. I wanted to keep talking to you. <laughs> you go? We know you're busy. <laughs> all right. Well, it's great to to meet you at uh, computer screen
2: to computer screen. Yes. <laughs> 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 and look forward to connecting.
1: Yeah, Thank All you, right. Ryan. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, goodbye.